Before we start today's episode, we wanted to provide a disclaimer regarding the audio quality. We had some technical issues with the recording, but we still feel the content of the interview is highly valuable and worth sharing. Welcome to Evidence Based, a new Harbinger psychology podcast. We're your hosts, Cassie and Kendall. On today's episode, we'll be talking about borderline personality disorder, BPD. Our guest is Dr. Daniel J. Fox, who is a licensed psychologist in Texas, international speaker, and award-winning author. He has been specializing in the treatment and assessment of individuals with personality disorders for more than 20 years in the state and federal prison system, universities, and in private practice. His specialty areas include personality disorders, ethics, burnout prevention, and emotional intelligence. He has published several articles in these areas and is the author of the Borderline Personality Disorder Workbook, Complex Borderline Personality Disorder, and the Clinician's Guide to Diagnosis and Treatment of Personality Disorders, along with the award-winning Narcissistic Personality Disorder Toolbox and the award-winning Antisocial Borderline Narcissistic and Histrionic Workbook. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're really excited to talk about borderline personality disorder. I think a lot of people have questions um, surrounding personality disorders in general. So we're really looking forward to um, speaking with you uh, about this topic. Great. Well, I, I look forward to talking with both of you. Thank you. Thank you for asking me to participate. I'm really excited. It'll be cool. Sure, of course. So uh, we thought we'd start off with uh, sort of a general question of what is borderline personality disorder and what makes it a disorder? Okay, so what is borderline personality disorder? So borderline personality disorder, in a nutshell, is basically it is an impairment in the ability to not only recognize different emotional and behavioral facets of the self, but also um, as well as developing and encouraging sort of relationships. And it's that concept of self that interferes with relationships, even perspectives of self. It could go as far even for an individual who may have psychosis or, or delusional disorder, something along those lines, more at, at the extreme. And what makes it a disorder, so there's a universal criteria, right, across all disorders. So we use a book, right, Diagnostic and Statistical Manuals in the fifth edition, DSM. And so across all disorders, in order for anything to be classified as a disorder, it has to have what's called socioeconomic dysfunction. And that socioeconomic dysfunction is that the impairment, and in this case, like borderline personality disorder, which is the ability to conceptualize yourself as well as others, and that impacts relationship, is that it causes impairment in those relationships as well as your ability to um, function, could be academically if you're in school, could be personally, like with friendships, um, economically if you have a job, you know, depending on your age and things, things like that. So that's what makes it a disorder. Then if we want to take another step, we're going, we're going another step. This is how we're doing it. Another step. Then we could say for personality disorders, for all personality disorders, there's a universal criteria, which is impaired insight. Now, that's not necessarily in all the criteria in the DSM, but it is something that you see across all personality disorders, this impaired insight. And that basically means that their issues and problems and concerns that, you know, yeah, it impacts others. Yeah, it, it impairs the way they see themselves, but it's also um, they don't recognize it. 
So they, they have trouble seeing it. And a lot of times I think that that gets misconstrued that people are like, oh, you know, they're, they're being manipulative or they know what they're doing, you know. Um, and a lot of times they don't. Granted, everything is on a continuum. So, you know, everything is an extreme where nobody knows anything they're doing and then everybody knows everything they're doing. So it's all along those lines. So we're going to get to this later uh, as to what makes borderline so hard to diagnose. And I think it's going to have to do with kind of that lacking awareness of what you're doing sometimes in some of these relationships, but what are some of the common symptoms of BPD or at least the things that you're looking for in practice? Mm -hmm. So the, the common symptoms, you know, are going to be certainly um, intense relationships, right? Is that you're going to see that in, in these relationships and they don't necessarily have to be just romantic. So they can be um, again, they can be academic, they could be employment, they could be familial, you know, certainly in romantic relationships, friendships, all of those things. Um, so you see that they're intense relationships. And part of that intensity is the tendency to have someone either a hero or a zero, right? So you see someone as they're just everything and they have everything you want in there. And the things about them are going to make the you know, your life a perfect place and you're going to suddenly understand yourself and then things are just going to be wonderful and perfect and they're just everything, everything you could possibly imagine. And then something happens, which could be that they don't text you back, right? And they don't text you back. So all of a sudden they're the devil and they're the worst thing, the worst person you've ever met in your life. And they're just the worst. And because of that perspective, you then react to them in that way, whether they're a hero or a zero, right? Whether you idealize them or you devalue them. Um, other ones are, other, other cr criteria that, that we see very often are sort of a lot of paranoia that can come out of intense stress. And that is, you know, so folks, you know, because they don't manage their relationships well, they don't, they don't manage their self-conception well, that, there is a lot of like underlying stress. And what happens is, is that everybody has that level, right? You have it. I have it. Everybody that you know has it. We all have that level, right? What we can tolerate. Well, once for someone with, with BPD, is that once they hit that level, then there's this intensive level of paranoia where is someone out to get me? Is someone hurting me? Is someone... I'm going to do something behind my back. And it can get to the point where it is delusional. But again, because it's so individualized, it can really depend. I mean, you know, what, what we could say you and I could tolerate may be very different for someone with, with BPD. They could have a very low threshold. And sometimes they do. And then sometimes you see people that have really had some rough uh, experiences. And then, you know, for them, they have pretty high tolerance before they reach that level of paranoia. Another criteria is that folks um, can also tend to disassociate. So that means you kind of separate from yourself a little bit. You separate from your experience in the environment. Uh, some of my clients have reported feeling like they're outside themselves, you know, or looking at themselves. So they're, they're not inside themselves. They've stepped out and they can not really see themselves, but they feel that sense of detachment. Um, another criteria is that there are often uh, suicidal threats, gestures, and attempts. And this one gets a lot of attention for the BPD, for, for individuals with, with, with BPD. And 
this is one of those criteria. I, I like to call it like it's golden criteria, right? Golden criteria, and that, that's kind of my own term, but the golden criteria is that it's this one criteria that you see in that person, and then you're like, oh, they're BPD, right? So when we talk about self-mutilation, self-harm, you know, suicidal threats, gestures, attempts, and then when, when you see that, um, that all of a sudden, um, and this is true for mental health providers as well as people who uh, are not um, mental, mental health providers, right, who, who are not providing mental health services, um, that you'll see them like, oh, you know, then you look it up, and it's like, oh, BPD, and a lot of people will write me and say, well, you know, I do self-harm, but I don't have any of this other stuff, so I must have BPD, whoa, that's the problem with golden criteria. You ignore all the other eight criteria and you only focus on that one singular element. Like just to use an example in another disorder, like bipolar disorder. So people that have very erratic moods, highs and lows, even though it's not a manic or hypomanic level or depressive level, but you have that moodiness, right? And then like, oh, well, that's bipolar. Whoa, there's all kinds of, other factors and issues that have to be considered for, to have that full disorder. So um, certainly, you know, the gestures, the threats, suicidal issues. I think that um, this, that particular criteria, again, going back to the suicidal threats, gestures, attempts, um, I think that it's also a reason why a lot of mental health providers are afraid to work with individuals with, with BPD. Um, because I think that they're afraid of, you know, that they're always coming in and, you know, oh, my God, I'm going to kill myself, I'm going to kill myself. And certainly, you know, there are a lot of folks who say that, but not all individuals along that borderline spectrum say it or do it or engage in self-harm. Because there are a lot of other disorders that do engage in self-mutilation, PTSD, anxiety, psychosis, depression, um, so substance abuse. So, but the problem is, is that if that occurs it typically uh, falls on an individual that may be along that spectrum of, of BPD. So you talk about it as a spectrum. So can you talk about the difference of somebody who might be exhibiting traits of borderline versus when someone would have the full diagnosis? Mm -hmm. So what we're talking about there is we're, we're talking more about sort of how many criteria are present, right? So in order to qualify for the full disorder, um, you would have to have five or more of the nine criteria. But when you just talk about traits, then you're talking about four or less. But so there's no specific criteria where you could say, okay, well, you know, this person has intense relationships, you know, uh, under high degree of stress, they do uh, engage in, you know, paranoid ideation, dissociation. So, um, you know, so you, you have to first differentiate that. You have to say, okay, how many traits are present? Do they cause socioeconomic dysfunction? And then we always want to know, you know, are there uh, triggers that set it off? Are there particular triggers that may, you know, cause someone to have um, a borderline-like episode? Um, and then your your other question was, so what about folks who have the full disorder and just traits? So <clears throat> treatment-wise, and interestingly, I think that a lot of mental health providers who may not be familiar with actually working with or, or seeing um, individuals along that the BPD spectrum, since we're just talking about, about, about BPD today, but um, I think that if they don't see the intensity, 
and you know like your uh fatal attraction do you guys know fatal attraction <laughs> I mean, okay I'm just, I'm just checking you know it's kind of older some people see it some people but then but the newer edition is more like gone girl right mm-hmm. if you've seen gone girl more people have seen gone girl but gone girl is a little different than fatal attraction we talk about the movies if you want in a minute but um but what happens is is that I think there is an expectation, particularly in the mental health field, that only the upper 3%, which is your extreme, that that becomes sort of the definitional component for BPD, which is only the folks that are at that extreme, right? The ones that, that you know, are having those paranoid ideations, are having, you know, um, several self-harm episodes that are having that intense, you know, the heroes and zeros and all those other um, factors and issues that go along with BPD. But if we only look at the upper 3%, aren't we really missing the 97%? Right? And most folks fall within sort of that moderate range. And that means, you know, that you may have some self-harm episodes. You may not. You may have, you know, some intense relationship issues. You may not. You may have an unstable self-image, like how you see yourself. You know, you may be more chameleon-like in your sense of values and beliefs because you want to be accepted by others, right? And you may have sort of an ill-defined view of the world and how you can impact the world as well. So those are additional factors. But when it's moderate, it's not as intense. It's not as, um, you know, oh, my God, you know, the sky's always falling. You know, the house is always on fire. We have to get out. And I think that, that that has created a huge, huge problem, and it adds so much to the stigma of, of BPD. And I think that that becomes a really big problem, which causes a lot of mental health providers not to want to work with folks that are along the BPD spectrum. But I think that they're missing out, or they're, or they're treating folks that have BPD, and they don't know it, and they're missing it, because they're only looking for that 3%. I think it's really interesting with BPD because so many of the, I think a lot of people identify with some of the traits of BPD and we're going to get into um, why BPD is so confusing for mental health providers and, um, and why it's often misdiagnosed. But I think it's really interesting identifying with the traits and and what makes that actually the diagnosis versus just having BPD qualities or um, exhibiting some of those, uh, those traits. And going back to what you said earlier about triggers, um, what are some of the common triggers that could um, kind of propel someone into an episode of experience or heightening their uh, BPD traits or qualities? Mm-hmm. So I think that triggers are pretty specific to the individual. So we don't want to overgeneralize. And the way that I actually approach sort of diagnosis and treatment, and I, I talk this a lot, I talk about this a lot in uh, in my workbook and then in, in my, my recent book as well, in the uh, complex BPD um, book that, that came out recently as well. And what, what it is, so when we look at triggers, I think we really have to differentiate between what I call core content and surface content. So surface content is perhaps like anxiety, depression, uh, PTSD symptomatology, could be psychosis. And those are the things that kind of med- medication can treat. Right. And I, and I know we're talking about triggers. So I'm, I'm going off that beaten path to, just for, to, just for attack, just to kind of describe what that surface content is. The core content is really for, for folks with BPD. The classic core content is emptiness 
and then abandonment. And those are also two pretty intensive criteria and factors that you see a lot across all individuals, across many individuals, we won't say all, right, across many individuals with, with BPD. So when we say triggers, I think that we have to say, okay, so um, a lot of folks with BPD, when they experience a sense of abandonment or emptiness, and we just want to go to those classic triggers, that it's also their core content, because that's what kind of sets them off, right? Because they feel like the people that they want to love them and care about them is going to leave them, but could be for some arbitrary reason, right? It could be that I didn't text you back fast enough. I didn't do this for you. I wasn't, you know, perfect enough for you. I didn't do this. I didn't do that. So then I have no value. The BPD person says, so I have no value. So I'm going to leave, which then I'll be abandoned when I least expect it. So if I'm going to be abandoned when I least expect it, doesn't that cause me to feel empty because I have a poor sense of self and an unstable sense of self-image and that impacts our relationship because you're a hero and you're a zero, but also then because I tend to have a low threshold for anxiety and then I tend to get paranoid or, or then I tend to disassociate. So now what do I do? Right. So that's just kind of a, in a nutshell, like, the, the BPD outlook on the world, right? So those common triggers, you know, abandonment. What is abandonment for, for someone with BPD? I think it's very specific for that individual. You know, sometimes it's this identified other or caregiver. Like think about the most important person in your life, right? Take a second, think about that, mm-hmm. right? And when you think about that person, right? Imagine that you text them, right? And they don't text you back ever. And then- they take off, right? They don't tell you why. And, and you know that nothing terrible has happened, right? Somehow you just know, right? They're, you know, all of those horrible things. There hasn't been an accident, nothing like that. No medical issue, nothing. they just poof, right? So they're gone. Now what do you do? And you can be like, well, I don't care. I'll go about myself. Yeah, right, sure. No, it doesn't work that way, right? Because then you're like, oh, but imagine that it's, that you... For you to reach that sense of perhaps that sense of abandonment, it may take you longer, right? Because you'd be like, well, where are they? That's really weird. You know, right? You might call their their sister or brother or friend or mom or, you know, things like that. But then you get that sense of abandonment. Now, amplify that sense of abandonment by 100. And imagine that you experience that with most texts that you get, most people that are important to you. Or if you have a job that's really important to you or a skill that's really important to you that you're afraid to be evaluated, you know, or judged on. And then imagine that that keeps happening, right? It goes in and out, in and out, in and out every day. I mean, it's, 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 it's intense. It's intense. And it's, you know, I've, I've, I've had clients in the past that their core content has been this sense of invisibility, right? And, what that means is that they're afraid of disappearing, of becoming so irrelevant that people no longer care. I mean, like wrap your head around it. Like that, imagine that you, you believe that you become so irrelevant to the world around you that no one even cares. I mean, right? You go to Starbucks, you're standing in line forever. Right, because no one waits on you because you're invisible. You don't matter, right? You 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 want to voice your opinion. You want to voice your concerns. You want to voice your your political opinions if you have them, whatever that may be. 
and no one, no one really responds as though they hear you. I mean, that's, that's intense. That's so heavy. It is. It is heavy. Yeah. It's a lot to carry. Um, I'm curious about, uh, just in follow-up, the abandonment part. Do you ever find that with clients, they sort of do this self-fulfilling prophecy type deal where, you know, they're so worried someone's going to leave them that they completely push them away to fulfill that, that fear of abandonment? Is that something that's quite common? It is. It is. And interestingly, all of us do it. All human beings do that, right? We set up our life to meet our expectations. Now we can do it in a healthy and adaptive way, or we can do it in a very maladaptive way. And the maladaptive way is let, so let's add, you know, we'll, we'll, of course we'll, we'll do the, the BPD example. So if we're looking at that sense of abandonment, so what happens is, is that, right, you and I, right, we get in this relationship and I really like you. And I, I, we just met and I do, I think you're very nice, right? So now, right, I, yeah. And now, right, so we're, we're, we're in this relationship and I really like you. And I'm thinking, oh, you know, she's everything. She's going to be great. And we're going to get married. and We're going to have these kids. And, you know, we're going to, we're going to have, you know, pets and birds and fish. I don't know why we're having so many animals, but we are. <laughs> But right. And we have all these things and it's just going to be perfect. Right. And then so now you're at that hero status. Right. But and I, I'll, I use the example of texting because that's become such an issue for a lot of my clients. So then right, I, I text you and, you know, you're you're at work. Right. You're doing I'm presuming, you know, you're doing this podcast. So you're probably not going to answer your phone. But I text you and you don't text me back. Now, you told me that you have a podcast, you know, starting at this time, you know, for this amount of time. But I sent you that text and it's just, you know, um, what do you want for dinner? And you don't write me back. So then what I do is all of a sudden you're this horrible, terrible person and you've abandoned me. You've left me. So now in order to stave off this intense feeling of abandonment and emptiness, so then I might, depending on if I have tendency more towards acting out sexually or aggressively towards others or myself, whatever it may be, but I then engage in that maladaptive pattern, right? And that maladaptive pattern pushes you away. And then if we want to talk about, like to take it a step further, if we want to talk about sort of relationship patterns that are really common in folks with, with BP, it's, I call it a push-pull cycle, right? So first, right? So, you know, you and I are still in that relationship with all of our animals, you know, that we're going to have and all that other stuff, right? And then, you know, you didn't respond. So then I start sending you all these texts about how I hate you and you've left me and I know that you're, you're, you're cheating on me and, you know, you did it and all this stuff. By the way, we've only been, you know, maybe seeing each other for about a week. And then, so I'm sending you all the stuff and then you're like, what, what is going on? Whoa, hold on a minute. Right. So then you start to dial it back a bit. And then I sense that, which is that sense of abandonment. Then now I'm going to make myself pay. Usually internally, sometimes it's with a lot of intensive negative self-talk. Sometimes it is self-harm. Sometimes, you know, there's various levels of, of punishment that different individuals along the BPD spectrum encounter. So then once I've punished myself enough and whatever that enough is, most of my clients don't know. And, you know, so, but once I've reached that level, then I come back to you so that, so, so that we can repair it. And then, um, then I'm really nice. I may be, you know, very coquettish. And then you start to see all these things that you saw in me before where you're like, wow, you know, Oh, I don't know. Maybe he just, you know, was wigging out for a minute, you know, maybe, Oh, it's okay. So now I've repaired. So 
then you start to get close to me, right? But then you're getting too close. And I remember that feeling of abandonment. So I pull back and then you're like, wait a minute, aren't we supposed to be close? I thought we were getting closer. And I'm like, yeah, but you're just going to abandon me. You're going to leave me. Wait, what are you talking about? I'm not going anywhere. Oh yeah, you're going to go somewhere. What? What are you talking about? And then it just goes around and around. So it it creates this push-pull cycle. And if you don't break it, and depending on, you know, the psychological needs of the partner and their own issues, then you, you, you can do that, that cycle, I mean, for years, years. Yeah, that sounds exhausting for everyone. It's really hard. It is. It's really, really difficult. So before we get too far in, I want to ask the question that I think Kendall's teased a little bit about a couple of times. Um, so why is this... Um, BPD so often misdiagnosed? And what would you say is maybe the most common misdiagnosis? Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of times it's often misdiagnosed because it is misperceived as the upper 3%. So people are only looking for extreme cases. Um, And, you know, there's a lot of different uh, stigma and fallacies about about BPD that adds to that that level of, of misdiagnosis which is that they wait, you know, to see, oh, well, not they wait, you know, like intentionally, but so, you know, you may work with a client who, uh, who has depression, right? And now depression is really common and highly comorbid with individuals um, with, with uh, BPD. So we see that very often. So maybe your client first comes to you and it's with depression and that depression you know, you notice it and you're, you're, you're going through, you know, therapy, you're kind of doing your thing and they're, they're responsive, you know, they seem nice. Maybe they're a little reactionary and, you know, sometimes they pull back because you see that push pull cycle in therapy as well. So you kind of see that playing out, but that's not, that doesn't fit this misunderstood aspect of BPD. So you're not even thinking BPD yet, right? Then let's just say, right. That you have an emotional explosion. The client has an emotional explosion, right? For some, right? Or they say, oh, you know, I, I cut myself last night or, you know, I, I went on a, on a drug binge or something like that, you know, and then you're like, what? And then things start to, to put it together. Then they say, oh, you know, well, you know, I've been cutting myself for years. Oh boy. And then they start to think, oh, is this person BPD? Wait a minute. You got eight other criteria to go through, right? And is it there? Is it not? And interestingly, I think, um, if, if we want to look at sort of overlap between other personality disorders, I think the big confusion as it relates to gender um, for BPD is antisocial personality disorder. And that is, is that men who exhibit borderline personality disorder traits or, or the full disorder are more often misdiagnosed than with antisocial personality disorder. And women who... Uh, are more along the antisocial personality disorder spectrum are more likely misdiagnosed with BPD. And that's a big problem because that means we're not paying attention to the criteria. They were making too many assumptions and we have to go to the criteria. We have to recognize that it's all on a spectrum, right? Somebody could really do a lot of idealization and devaluation and perhaps that sense of abandonment isn't as bad. So they're like, oh, I don't know. It's kind of touch or go. Fewer people are going to meet criteria for the full disorder and more people are going to meet the criteria for traits. But so, but I, I think we, we want to squeeze everybody in, in, into this box where they're like, yeah, okay, well, well, it's BPD. I mean, you have BPD. Well, I mean, do they, do they not? Most of my clients have traits. It's, you know, I mean, I'd certainly have, 
have a number of clients who have the full, the full disorder, but most, most come with me and we're working on traits, you know, three, four traits that are really disruptive in their life that are very, very challenging. And the other ones just, they're, they're just not there. And it's not from a lack of them looking or me looking or anything like that. Uh, Cause we're looking, but it's, it's just not there. But again, I, I think, you know, to also talk about um, that, that's sort of the complexity with diagnosis, but I think also because you see these other comorbid conditions that, that co-occur, you only have about, you know, right around 3% or so, anywhere like three to like 13% of individuals that only have BPD and only, I mean, of course, you know, we're, we're, we're using that term, you know, not, we're not minimizing it, but you know, that only have that meaning that there's all of the symptom presentation and all of those issues associated with socioeconomic dysfunction, we can trace back to, to BPD. Where, so that means you have 97, 85 to 97%, right? Did I say, what did I say? I said 13, right? <laughs> I'll get it, right? So we have 87, 87, right? 97%. But most are going to have comorbid conditions. But the problem is, and this is a huge reason, this is a huge reason why I, I, wrote, I wrote the book and New Harbinger was so cool to, 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 to let me do it. Um, because that's where complex BPD comes into play because we have to consider the comorbid conditions. But more often than not, a lot of mental health providers and clients, people too, because everybody wants the silver bullet. Everybody wants to know what's this one pill I can take that makes everything okay. There's no pill. And, you know, bummer, you know, but it's the truth. But that there's often, you know, comorbid conditions that are there, PTSD, ADHD, psychosis, depression, um, you know, all of these other issues that, that are also in the mix. So that adds to muddying up the clinical picture. So it takes time to kind of tease it out, but it can get easier. And when, when I teach uh, mental health providers, you know, I, I always try to get them to say, see, we have to look at personality disorders as a dual, as a dual construct, which is you have surface content and core content. If you look at it as a linear construct, which is just like depression, right? I mean, depression is kind of depression. Yeah, there are things that cause it, but is it really rooted, you know, into who you are and how you see yourself? A lot of times it's not. A lot of times, you know, most folks, when they see depression, they see it as something they're dealing with, whereas BPD and all of my clients, I try to burn it into their brain that you are not BPD. A lot of them say, well, I'm, I'm borderline personality disorder. Whoa. You know, I, I say a lot of woes, you know, I say, whoa, a lot, but, and I tell them, I was like, you know, whoa, whoa, whoa. I said, you know, when someone has cancer, no, that individuals usually don't say, well, I'm cancer. No, they say I have cancer. Then why, if you have BPD, do you say, well, I am BPD? Whoa, no, you're not. It's something you're dealing with. Right. Just as, you know, cancer, there's so many different factors and issues and presentations that go along with it. Well, BPD is, is very similar, but yet individuals that have it want to define themselves by it or they don't know not to. And that's where the problem comes into play as well, particularly diagnostically, because now you have to separate the individual from their perceived pathology that they believe is part of who they are. Right. It's all easy to understand. It's all simple stuff. It's easy. Well, that was going to be my question um, regarding diagnosing uh, someone mainly with a personality disorder. Do you find that um, 
people feel relieved when they can put a name to it or that um, like they can understand it better? Or do you tend to find that that's a scary, that's a scary thing to explore? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I, I think that, that, that that's a great question because I think that you've got to look at it from, from several vantage points, which is that I think that, you know, particularly those, those with VPD, you know, we mentioned that a criteria is unstable self-image. So that means you don't really know who you are, right? You don't, you know, you blend into different environments, you know, you grab onto different belief systems, so on and so forth. And that when you start to look it up, right? So pre-Google, I'm going to, I'm going to date myself for a minute. Excuse me. So pre-Google, right? That, you know, folks didn't know, you know, they didn't know about the DSM. They didn't Google, you know, oh, you know, I, I have an urge to cut myself. Google it. And borderline personality disorder is going to pop up right at the top. Um, and, you know, or it could be abandonment, and emptiness, you know, things like that. But before all that, clients didn't know. So a lot of times you would be working with someone for a little while, and then they would say, you know, what's, what's my diagnosis, doc? You know, what's, what's going on? And then, you know, then you, you may say something, you know, that back in the day, I wasn't really a big proponent of telling my clients what, what the disorder was. Because I would ask them, how does that help you? I mean, why do you want to know? Because we, I want to be careful because I don't want them to internalize it and make it about who they are, just, just as I explained a moment ago. Now, with Google and all of that, clients already have a pretty good idea. They're usually looking for confirmation. But if you add that to an unstable self-image, which means that then they're going to internalize it, make it about who they are, right? If, if that's one of their issues associated with, with BPD, then, right, then they're going to say, well, I am BPD. Oh, hold on a minute. And so, but I think when, when folks look online, right, and then a lot of times they're, they're coming to me for confirmation. And I think, you know, that sometimes they may get a sense of relief, but the problem is, particularly as it relates to BPD, is that then when you when you see what's if if you Google BPD first of all you're going to get an avalanche of false stereotypical beliefs right or statements and you may find old research because that's what people are clicking the most right old research that said it's untreatable which is absolutely positively not true right that these are people that you never want to know if you it run from them they're these you know because it's the three percent and we can go back to the 1980s, right? And early, you know, uh, mid 90s, you know, early 90s, where they did believe that. They did believe that those with VPD, they're just untreatable. They're these, you know, psychopathic, horrible human beings that are going to do nothing but destroy your life. Well, that's absolutely false and completely ridiculous, but it is still promoted today. So now you get someone who's trying to figure out who they are. Then they look it up. BPD seems to fit. Then they Google BPD. And most of the time, I mean, I, I hate to say it, is you're, you're going to find misinformation more than you're going to find accurate information. And that was the impetus, right, for me starting my whole YouTube channel, which is that people have to have facts out there. They have to have the truth out there. And there's too many people, even mental health providers with really good pedigree so to speak they come from fancy schools they work at fancy universities you know all that other stuff and and what they're saying is is that and this is a quote right i'm not going to tell you who said it but that they have said that borderline personality disorder 
is the female equivalent of anti-personality, of antisocial personality disorder. That is ridiculous. That is completely false. And then to come from someone who is supposed to be educated in it, someone who's supposed to be an expert in it, where, where is that coming from? Because that's research from the 70s and 80s. That's if not even in the early 90s, because they started to figure out, wait a minute, why are these folks getting better? Why are they having these remission rates? What's going on? You know, so I know that I digress a little bit, but I want to fully answer your question. No, I I was curious, though, as a follow up to that, um, since you did mention Gone Girl in the beginning, (laughs) when you see a depiction of a character like that, and then you see the articles in the news that come out talking about the main character having borderline personality disorder or like psychologists weighing in, what are your thoughts about what that does for borderline or the perception of it? Like it's showing like an extreme case scenario where people who know that movie are terrified of that character. Um, But obviously that one character does not define, we're talking about that small percentage um, of the extremes. Mm -hmm. And I think that that, that I understand where Hollywood is coming from, right? But the problem is, is that then when Hollywood attaches a mental health provider, a professional to that, then it's, it's even worse, right? Then it's, it's amplified the stigma. You've amplified the problems that these folks already have. And I think, you know, you put stuff out there that is just so skewed. And I think then you have people who read it, who are contending with those issues or been diagnosed with, with those disorders. And then they're like, Oh my God, that's me. So I'm, I'm gone girl. So that's why, that's why no one loves me. That's why no one cares about me. That's why I can't get close to anybody. You know, here, Cassie and I, we just, we were in this relationship for a week and now we're going to have all these fish and stuff. And now, you know, everything is just, is just blown up. And, but that's why, because you know, she must have figured out that I met this criteria. And so I, I don't have any value. So I'm not important. So if I'm not important, then what am I doing here? And, and but the, all of this is like instantaneous and it burns through their brain over and over and over. And a lot of times it's echoing a lot of things that they've learned. Now, Hollywood echoes, right? What my mom told me, what you know, my friends did to me or my friends told me or my cousin, you know, da, 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 whoever, not always a family member, you know, whoever it is, somebody important. Um, and it, it just, it just intensifies and solidifies the negative. And it, it makes my job really hard. <laughs> yeah. Um, I want to ask more about complex BPD, but first I want to ask why historically BPD has been so stigmatized. Like it, like, you know, it keeps coming back in this conversation that there's so much misinformation out there. You know, clinicians are scared to treat people with BPD. Why, like, where has that really come from, aside from some bad research in the 70s? Mm-hmm. And you can go all the way back to when it was first identified, right? So borderline, the term actually comes from borderline psychosis. And what was happening is, is that in, in these uh, mental health hospitals, you know, on, on these psychiatric wards, is that they had these, these women and they, they, were, they were women at, at the time and they could, because they didn't broaden it out to men, because when they saw this, they were like, oh, well, they're, they're schizophrenic, you know, but with these women, we're, we're seeing this subset of women that are exhibiting these psychotic-like symptoms, but they're not psychotic, but they're, you know, and granted, you know, we're talking, you know, 100 years ago that, you know, but, but they're, they're hysterical, right? To go back to like the Freudian use of, of the word 
of the term hysterical, right? It's a, they tend to be active, you know, intensive relationships, um, you know, dissociation, you know, engaging in self-harm, you know, have these fears of abandonment, emptiness, you know, it wasn't all that well-defined back then, but they're on the borderline of psychosis. So because they're on the borderline of psychosis, and they said, okay, well, let's call this borderline disorder. Then what happens is then, you know, as they do more research into it and they find out, well, it's not really, and they didn't use these terms, but if they did, they would have made great advancements, but I wasn't around at the time, so I couldn't help them out. But right, is that, you know, what they were looking at was surface content. And if they look at the core content, the driving factors, and they did eventually about 20 years later, right? 30 years later, now you're like 60s, you know, well, maybe a little late, 70s or so. Now they start to say, but this seems to be on a developmental course. So we know the developmental process relates to personality. So let's call it borderline personality disorder because it's about the developmental process. Then we get into the late 80s, then the 90s. So you didn't know you're getting a history of <laughs> Then right, we get into the 80s and 90s. And now, then we start to do like more FMR, fMRI studies. We start to do, you know, more brain research. And we've been doing a lot of brain research and we see the individuals, some individuals with BPD, some, not all, right? That they have these brain differences, right? Particularly um, as to how they process dopamine and how they experience pain. So for some individuals that are along the borderline spectrum, this tends to be more your extreme cases, is that when they engage in self-harm, they have what's called an analgesic effect. The analgesic effect is that, you know, by harming yourself, you get a sense of calm. And what's interesting about that is that when they do that, and they've, they've, they've done studies, now they don't have anyone hurt themselves at with and doing the research, but what they find is that these individuals, when they experience pain, even psychological pain, that they get a dopamine release. And if we look at it, and there's a lot of really cool up and coming research on sort of the dopamine, going for that dopamine hit, right? Because, you know, Steve Jobs got us all, you know, we all love dopamine and we have <laughs> since, you know, since human beings first started, we didn't know what it was. But now if you look at it from a dopamine perspective, we're trying to get that dopamine hit right now with our phones, right? When you're on the phone, every time you pick up that phone, a little bit of dopamine, a little bit more, a little bit more, right? You want to know what it's like when you don't get that dopamine hit? You know, when you type in Google Maps and it takes an extra second for it to pop up and you get that little instance of, oh, man, right? Yeah. That's that dopamine going, nope, not going to give it to you, not going to give it to you, not going to give it to you. And you start to get a little annoyed and frustrated, right? And then the map pops up and you're like, ah, dopamine. So, but what happens is, is that, Individuals along the BPD spectrum, particularly at the higher end, is that you see that they engage in these self-harm behaviors. Sometimes it's also uh, substances, things like that, to get that dopamine hit. So, and it, so there's there's now medications, and this is really early research. It's called naltrexone, and they're finding some really good good results for extreme cases of BPD that it is significantly cutting down self-harm, significantly cutting down substance abuse. And I mean, that's just great, great gains. Now, you can't just take naltrexone. It's not a panacea, right? You're just going to take it and boom, everything's great. All of a sudden you have social skills, you know, you and I, right? But you don't have that push-pull in our new relationship. You know, Cassie, you didn't know what was happening today. See? <laughs> we have birds. We have fish. <laughs> I know, right? We got all kinds of cool stuff. Yeah. But, but so, you know, now it's not like all of a sudden I know how to function in a relationship. But what's happening is, 
is I don't have that same driving force to, did you not text me? You know, or to, it's less, it's more controlled where you can use your strategies. And that's the purpose of medication, right? Medication isn't to make everything go away. Medication is to decrease those super high highs and those super low lows and to get it to a point where you can use those strategies, like where my thumbs are. I don't know if you guys can see it, right? My thumbs. That's kind of where our strategies come into play. Some people already have them, right? If you look at someone without a personality disorder for depression, and you take Prozac, effects, or Zola, whatever it is, right? And you take something, and so your depression isn't as low. So it lifts up a little more. Maybe you have good coping skills, but the depression gets in the way, right? You learned good emotional intelligence skills, and the depression gets in the way. So you take some medication, lifts you up. The medication, it seems like, oh, man. Everything's just great. Every no, it removed the moderate or severe, right, or extreme depression to where you were able to then use your strategies. If you don't have those strategies, remember, or poor insight, or all of those other things, then you still engage in maladaptive behaviors. They're just not as intense. They're not as destructive, but they're still there. You're, you know, you and I would we're, we're not moving in together, you know, because I got to learn those social skills, Cassie. I got to learn, you know. <laughs> got to learn. <laughs> I know. I'm trying. I want those fish. <laughs> and the birds. Uh, That's right. So I want to ask a little bit about the treatment. So when you're approaching someone with pure BPD versus complex, what? how are the treatments different for those two? So I think when you look at someone with, with pure pure BPD, right, and they're, they're very rare. I mean, they're, you know, it doesn't happen very often. And so you look at that aspect. So what we're going to do is we're going to go to core content. Because first, well, actually, first, I'm going to see if you can trust me, right? Can you realize that I'm not, I'm not going to hurt you, right? Can you realize that I'm not somebody, you know, if we're going to start treatment and I'm going to, I put everything out there. If you were to talk to any of my clients, they would all be like, oh, yeah, he puts it all out there. And I tell you exactly how missed sessions work. I'm going to tell you how often we're going to meet. I'm going to tell you how crisis is dealt with. I'm going to, I mean, I've been doing this for 20 years, so I'm going to give you the whole lay down and it's not, you know, it's to cut down on surprises because if I have to hospitalize you, none of my clients are like, Oh man, I didn't know you were going to do that. Yeah, you did. I mean, you know, come on. Yeah. I mean, you know, or, you know, if um, there, there's just no surprises. And I, I think by removing that aspect that helps and they feel safe. Right. Be, and I live my life. And one of the best things I ever learned from my dad is, you know, is that, you know, you have to be someone who says what they do and does what they say. And, you know, he said a little more eloquent, but you get it. And then, but, you know, so I just kind of, I treat my clients like that and I live my life like that. And my clients know that if I say it, I mean it. And I think, again, that helps them feel safe. So when we talk about treatment first, I'm going to see, you know, right. Are you comfortable with that? Can you handle what we're talking about? And then most of my clients come in typically for surface content stuff first, because they want to see if they can really, am, am I the person that, that they read about online? Am I really, you know, the person they see in the YouTube videos and in the workbooks and the other, like, you know, first of all, do I know what I'm talking about? You know, um, I, I, I had someone today, you know, that, that I, I was talking to, um, we're talking about potentially, you know, starting treatment and, and things like that. And she said, well, what are your credentials? 
And I haven't got that question in a really long time, which is fine with me. I have no problem with it, but only I think because I've put out a lot of books and I put out a lot of information stuff, but I, I was like, okay, that's cool. That you probably didn't look me up and that's kind of neat. That's fine. So I kind of explained and she, and she was very scared. She's like, yeah, I don't know. Like, I'm going to think about it. I'm like, oh, think about it. But anyway, but it's part of really what she's saying is, are you safe? All right. Are we going to get this started? And you're going to realize that I have this, this, or this. And then you're going to be like, oh, I'm dirty. I have no value. You know, that then I'm going to abandon her, causing her to feel empty. Right. Then, you know, and all of that other stuff, you know, then falls into place. Now, when we talk about treating someone with complex BPD, everything changes because you have to look at what are those co-occurring conditions. And I think depression is the best example because depression is probably one of the most common co-occurring conditions with, with BPD. So the issue is, is that right with depression and BPD, if that makes up the complex BPD that we're talking about. So you can't work with the depression first. And that's because if you're not going to really attenuate or turn down those depressive symptoms because the BPD is what's pushing it. So every time you may get a couple steps in with the, with, with the depression, all of a sudden another depressive spiral occurs because folks with BPD, whether you have depression or not. And if we say, you know, major depressive disorder is what we're talking about is that individual BPD, all of them that I have worked with that I have heard about, that I have met have depressive spirals. Now that means then we got to break that up, right? We have to look at depressive spirals and major depressive episodes. Now depressive spirals, they're like, you know, this sense of fatigue, lethargy, sadness, your hopelessness increases, your sense of worthlessness increases, your sense of helplessness increases, but it's not as intense as a major depressive episode, even mild major depressive episode. So if, if we're just working on the depression, like, well, I don't really want to deal with the BPD. Well, you're going to have to, because with that, with the complex BPD, that's made up of major depressive disorder and BPD that the BPD is driving the depression. Now we want to look at another one like bipolar disorder, very different because you have to work on the bipolar first. You have to stabilize it first. Now that's going to typically be done with medication, right? But bipolar is also on a spectrum as well. Now I've worked with some people that they refuse to take medication. They do have hypomanic episodes and it's hard to tease out. And it's really tricky. Are we looking at bipolar two or are we looking at borderline personality disorder? And that could be a whole nother podcast. I don't want to, I don't keep you locked in on that. One. But so, but first thing we have to do is stabilize the bipolar disorder, because if it's not stabilized and we start working with the BPD stuff, then you're still going to have your, your manic or hypomanic episodes and your major depressive episodes. So we have to regulate those and make sure that they're regulated. And while we're waiting for that medication to kick in, then we start talking about skills. The first few sessions with me are about skills, about, you know, how bad or impaired or good is your insight is a better way to look at it, right? How good is your insight? Be positive. Right. And then, you know, what else, what are you willing to do to incorporate into your patterns that's going to help you? Because working with BPD, even though, you know, all of my clients, they don't like their BPD. It's just, it's really created a lot of destruction in their relationship in their lives and how they see themselves. It's like that friend 
who you, you know, you know, you shouldn't be hanging out with them, but they're always there. And you know that they're going to wreck your life, but yet you still hang out with them because they're always there. But that makes them reliable. And if they're reliable, they're not going to abandon you. If they don't abandon you, then it don't cause you to feel empty. Whew. So your BPD becomes that really problematic friend that you're always hanging out with, even though you know you shouldn't be hanging out with them, but you do because you know what it's like when you hang out with them. Creates a degree of predictability. That is a really good analogy. Whoa. (laughs) Whoa. Now I'm saying it. Yeah. There's a lot of woes in this podcast. Yeah. I, that is a really good analogy. And, um, one of the quite, and taking out complex, but just talking about borderline, uh, personality disorder in general, what are some of the activities that you work with clients on just generally speaking for like mood stability, um, or things that they can do in the moment from what I'm hearing about BPD, it sounds like in the beginning, when you talked about the push pull, it sounds like a constant push pull in your, um, your stability of your mood, your emotions, things like that. So what are, what are some of the tactics that people can, can use or look to, to help with that? Yep, absolutely. And that's a great question. And I think, so what we have to do first is what I like to do is I like to add some mindfulness stuff. So mindfulness is really good. I think it's a great way to build some initial skills. Now there's a lot of different ways to do it. So a lot of people think that mindfulness is just stopping, right. And sitting in place. Well, I I have a lot of clients that are really active you know, and a lot of them have, now I'm not saying they have ADHD. So if anyone listening, they're like, oh, I don't mean anyone who I know, right? But they, they, they have some ADHD stuff, you know, right? It's hard for them to focus. They get super hyper about stuff, things like that, which is also common in, in BPD. So strategy, so particularly strategies like mindfulness, okay, is one. Then, you know, what's some insight building? So we want to pair mindfulness with insight building. And then, so it, it's really, it's not really singular, so first, right, um, you know, what, what is your, what's your motivation for change, right? And then once, once we have that, right, what's the degree of insight? Now, let's say that though you're, you're motivated for change and you have good insight. Then strategies, we're going to talk about mindfulness. And mindfulness can be active. You don't have to just sit still, right? So there's walking mindfully. You know, some of my clients like to do that. Um, another m- mindfulness strategy that I, that I taught to the to the person that I, I was mentioning earlier. So I told her, right, and I want you to get some tape. I want you to wrap it around, right, your first two fingers. So your pointer finger and your middle finger, right? Put them together, you're going to wrap it around. But the tape is going to be inside out. So the sticky part's on the outside, right? So with the sticky part on the outside, when you feel yourself start to get anxious, this is why the, the inside is so important because I'm not with them all the time. So, you know, once you start to feel yourself get anxious, and then I want them to describe what that feels like. And a lot of times when they first come to me, they describe the 11, right? From a a one to 10 scale. I'm like, no, 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 no. No, we want to go lower. And a lot of times like, I don't know. And they really don't. So we're working on insight and say, okay, so what I want you to do is right then. So they define what that level of increased stress is. Then what I want you to do is I want you to touch those two fingers, right? with, With your other hand right? I want you just to touch it. And you're going to feel the stickiness, right? And just feel the stickiness. And that's it. And you can do it when you're walking, right? I don't know if you should do it when you're driving. It's up to you. Be safe, right? But you know, but you, you can do it anywhere. And, you know, if you're walking along and you're doing it, no one's going to think you're weird. 
You know, it's not nothing out of the app. They don't know what you're doing. Most people are too busy on their phones anyway. I don't see what you're doing. So, you know, so you can just do that, but that can help you stay focused. And what that's going to do for those that have a tendency to disassociate, it's going to keep you grounded. And that's what we want to do because when you're grounded, you can make choices. When you make choices about yourself for yourself, you are empowered to determine the course of your life. And that is what we want to do. So mindfulness is one, right? A lot of my clients exercise, 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 right? When you get stressed out, exercise. A lot of people, you know, are not comfortable with how they look. So they don't like to go to gyms. Fine, exercise at home. You know, one of the nice things about COVID, and I know you probably never heard that, but it certainly <laughs> phrased that way, right? But one of the benefits of COVID was that a lot of people got workout equipment in their house. So a lot of my clients, and not, not because I, I asked them to, to do uh, any exercise at home or anything, but, you know, they got a, like a Peloton bike or they got, you know, a little treadmill or something. Like that. And I'm like, what I want you to do, I want you to get on that thing and go. Go. Don't go for like, you know, five minutes time. Go until until you until you're spent, because once that then you're going to get that dopamine hit though. See, once you work out a lot, right? That runner's high dopamine, right? You see, you know, I was going to sing to you either. See, Cassie, <laughs> Cassie, when we when we're living together, I'm going to be singing all day. I know I'm I'm a great singer, but you know, but you get that that dopamine hit. That that's what that's the reward for doing that. Right. Um, also, if you don't have anything like that, you can do sit ups. Right. You can do. I have clients who from, they haven't shown me their abs, but I tell them do a plank until you can't plank anymore. Right. And I'll tell you. And they've said, my abs are great. Dr. Fox, and, and I'm working on my BPD. Yeah. Double win. That's what we want. Great abs. And you're managing and growing beyond your BPD when, so there's a lot of, of different things that, that you can do. You can do it with food, you know, mindfulness, exercise. Um, also, uh, diet is really important. It's interesting that a lot of folks along the BPD spectrum eat a lot of high saturated, high calorie foods. And that doesn't mean like just candy bars and stuff, but it's a lot of just high calorie foods. And, but you know what I'm going to say? What you get? What kind of hit? Dopamine. <laughs> Dopamine. There you go. Right? Because, you know, and you just, they just eat a ton of it. And, and then, you know, so it's about good diet, managing your diet. And then, of course, you know, staying away from alcohol, drugs, stuff like that. And that can, can become really, really complicated because substance abuse changes the entire landscape. Definitely. Mind, I, think, I feel like everything comes back to mindfulness. Sorry, yeah. I was just going to say, every time <laughs> we talk about uh, tactics, you know, obviously they're different for depression and anxiety, but it, mindfulness, it's always in there somewhere, mm-hmm. uh, forcing us to be present. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's a powerful tool and people misunderstand it. They think it's meditation mm-hmm. and it's not. It's very active and it, it is a very um, centering you know, process. Yeah, forcing you to be present in the moment in your body. Um, well, I like that we're sort of ending on some solutions. Do you have any final thoughts for our listeners? I think that, you know, um, I, I like to encourage folks to, if, if you think that, that you may have BPD, I encourage people to go to a, you know, licensed mental health provider in order to get tested. And then in order, you know, there's more than testing. There's also, you know, interviews, there's also, you know, finding out the, the data as well. 
And I think, you know, finding out, you know, what those issues are, what, what kind of things that, that you may be contending with, um, doing that, but also, you know, not, not to define yourself. Also, please resist the garbage out there. You know, um, one, one of the recent videos I did is because um, I did uh, psychopathy and BPD because someone wrote me and said, you know, so my parents call me a psychopath because I have BPD. That drives me bananas. So, you know, so you've, you've got to be so aware that there's so much skewed stigma out there and you want to focus on the reality, stuff that is research-based, that's data-driven and things that you can actually hold on to that are based in reality. And then also the, the most important thing, and I drill this into all of my clients, 80% of individuals with BPD experience remissions over time. So that means, and remissions are defined, they're defined in various ways, but the most stringent is that, you know, is that you have four or you have no more than four criteria at, at any given time, and you're able to hold down a job, and you're able to attend school on a regular basis, right? And you have no serious or severe relationship disruptions. That's an 80%. So where's this idea coming from that these are the worst people in the world, that they're ruining everybody's life and all that? It's all fallacy. It's not, it's not based on reality. It's not, it's not based on my clinical experience and it's not based on the research that, that is out there that is genuinely done. When Cassie and I were getting ready for this conversation with you, a lot of our questions surrounded a lot of the misinformation around BPD. And so we're really thankful um, for your insight and your expertise on the topic, and especially with your second book, kind of covering the complex BPD part of it, because I think that it's kind of the elephant in the room um, is that once you have BPD, well, there might be some other things going on. And personally, I know people who have had those experiences. So to kind of expand off of that from you know, establishing what BPD is and then what else could be going on, I think is really huge for people. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We're so thankful you joined us because I think these conversations are important for the continued destigmatization of BPD. And I think, you know, the more we're out there talking about it, maybe the less fearful people can be, the, the more people can understand others in their lives who might be diagnosed with this and just, you know, less stigma, really. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I, I really appreciate you, both, appreciate you both taking your time, you know, to, to talk to me about this and something I'm real passionate about. So I'm always happy to, to talk about it. And it was great. It was great to talk with both of you. Thank awesome. you. Thank you. If you or someone you love is dealing with a crisis right now, please call 1-800-273-8255 to reach the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Introducing a breakthrough, integrative approach to managing your borderline personality disorder. If you've been diagnosed with BPD, you may feel a number of emotions, including shock, shame, sadness, abandonment, emptiness, or even anger. Even worse, you may be tempted to research your diagnosis online only to find doomsday scenarios and terrible prognosis everywhere you click. Take a deep breath. You can get through this. The Borderline Personality Disorder Workbook will help guide you. Visit our website at www.newharbinger.com and use coupon code PODCAST25 to receive 25% off your entire order.
New Harbinger Publications is an independent employee-owned publisher of books on psychology, health, spirituality, and personal growth. For nearly 50 years, our evidence-based self-help books and pioneering workbooks have helped readers make positive changes to improve mental health and well-being. Founded by psychologists Matthew McKay and Patrick Fanning, New Harbinger is proud to be an employee-owned company. Our books reflect our core values of integrity, sustainability, compassion, and trust. Written by leaders in the field and recommended by therapists worldwide, New Harbinger books are practical, accessible, and provide real tools for real change. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd love if you rated, reviewed, and subscribed to the show, and we hope you might share it with anyone who might benefit from the content. This podcast is not a substitute for counseling with a licensed provider. Join the New Harbinger Clinicians Club, a free membership club exclusively for mental health professionals. Sign up today and you'll receive a special welcome gift, 35% off all professional books, free client resources, free eBooks throughout the year, access to private sales, a subscription to our Quick Tips for Therapists email program, and more. Visit newharbinger.com slash clinicians dash club for more information.